Richard Page is back. For proof, go to his website or iTunes and you'll find his most recent solo release since his 1996 solo album, Shelter Me. What's most unusual is that he chose this holiday season to release a wonderfully crafted Christmas single entitled, I Always Cry at Christmas. But this isn't your typical Christmas track. This is a Richard Page song that delivers what you'd expect, something special and from the soul. As the former lead vocalist for Page's, Third Matinee, and Mr. Mister, he has delivered hits such as Broken Wings and Kyrie. But over the past several years, he has taken a break from his personal solo career to craft songs and produce artists such as Madonna, Leona Lewis, Bill Champlin, Al Jarreau, Celine Dion, as well as many others. Today, Richard is once again ready to let us all come into his world by sharing his music and his personal story with us all. Inside Music Cast is glad to welcome Richard Page as our first guest of 2009. Hey, Richard, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Thank you. You know, there are many facets of your career that Eddie and I want to chat about, but I, I want to start off by asking you what you've been up to since your uh, solo project back in, you know, in 1997, uh, Shelter Me. You're obviously working on projects for others, and, and you really haven't been pursuing your own own material, you know, for these past 12 years, right? Yeah. No, I haven't. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've been sort of stockpiling songs, you know. I mean, uh, for me... I have a, a lot of contacts with, uh, you know, uh, producers that are real successful producers like you know, David Foster and Walter A. And, sure. Um, so I have uh, an outlet or an open door for my songs for other artists. So that has been a real lucrative thing for me. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's basically what I've been doing mm-hmm. all these years and a little production on the side here and there. Um, but, yeah, I kind of just... After that uh, album, Shelter Me, I just uh, felt like I, I needed to just uh, sort of develop my songwriting. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it was, it was a sort of a bittersweet thing. I had a great time making that album and had a blast, had a lot of friends playing on it. Mm-hmm. I felt like it was really the best I could do. And then it was completely bungled by a record company that had no clue about what was going on. And it just really kind of soured me on the whole proposition. Mm-hmm of, uh, you know, doing another major label album. Well, I mean, obviously that's an unfortunate situation, but were you ever, in that period of 12 years or so, were you ever tempted to jump back in and release a, a follow-up solo album? Um, well, you know, people ask me all the time, when are you going to do another record? Sure, mm-hmm. I'm sure you so, are. So, uh, you know, I, it's never really, I've never been compelled on my own to do it until recently. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, there's been a lot of encouragement from people all over the place. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, I've figured... What the hell? I might as well try it again and <laughs> see what comes out. <laughs> yeah. Inside Music Cast, you know, we're in our third year of programming, and we have, you know, listeners all over the world. And Eddie and I receive comments about the show almost on a daily basis. Yeah. Is You know, and everybody always suggests, you know, who, who they want us to interview. And <laughs> and uh, without a question, you know, you're one of the most requested musicians. And, and I know our audience is pleased uh, that yeah. you're on the show with us today. And they'll also be pleased to know that you've released a new song that was released uh, in time for the holidays called right. I Always Cry at Christmas. And Eddie and I just, we were talking about this last night. We're just really taken aback at how beautiful this song is. And Tell us a little bit about your inspiration for writing and releasing this song. You know, I've always wanted to write a Christmas song, but I could never figure out what the angle would be, you know. I mean, mm-hmm. jingle bells and, you know, all the happiness and <laughs> sort of facade of Christmas has been written about ad nauseum. Yeah. And, um, you know, I just always thought, well, it'd be great to write a Christmas song from a different angle. And I could never quite get my finger on what it should be. And then I got a call from Walter A., 
uh, Walter Afanasio, sure. who you probably know as you know, Grammy-winning right. mm-hmm. producer, mm-hmm. Mariah Carey, and everyone else, mm-hmm. Celine Dion. And uh, he said, hey, I'm writing, um, I, do, you, do you want to write a Christmas song? I thought, yeah, I do, you know. So he said, come on over. And uh, I went over, and he just had this melody that was, I, I just loved it, you know. Mm-hmm. And I just threw out the line, I always cry at Christmas. And it was a song that kind of wrote itself. Mm-hmm. I've been lucky enough to have a couple of those in, in my career right. where the, the song just sort of happens and it was sort of like time out of mind and you turn around 20 minutes later and you know like wow did i pass out or what you know what happened <laughs> you know how did we get that you know yeah and it was one of those kind of songs where it just sort of happened uh and right before us and then we pitched it to a few people david foster held it for michael buble mm-hmm for a while, he loved the song and wanted to cut it. And then Michael didn't want to do a Christmas album. I think he'd done an EP a few years ago. Mm-hmm. So it just sort of lingered there. And uh, my wife actually said to me, she said, you know, I don't think anybody can sing this as well as you. You should just do it yourself. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, that's kind of a novel idea. You know, I haven't done anything. And my brother, Rob, who's been bugging me forever just to get a website up and start <laughs> doing that. Right. Um, <laughs> said, hey, well, let's do a video. And then just kind of one thing led to another. We were a little bit behind because we didn't really get it out until just after Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. I get it finished. But anyway, we just made a little video. It's on YouTube. And it's, um, I'll do a shameless pitch for it here. It's <laughs> YouTube slash Richard Page Music. Yeah. And then the, the single, the more produced version with the orchestrations uh, is up at iTunes right now. Right. Uh, if you just, you know, write... Or type my name and then it'll come up. You can do all the shameless promotion you want. As a matter of fact, um, <laughs> y- your website is richardpagemusic.com, and you can check it out there as well. Exactly. And, and, That's uh, right. Links to... Yeah, uh, it's a fledgling uh, website. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I said, my brother's twisted my arm into doing it. And <laughs> I'm, I'm sort of chronically lazy. I think I wrote that in the bio there. But, well, yeah. but what is no. it about brothers that can twist your arm to do anything, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, I have three brothers, so. Do you? Yeah, and uh, all of them play music, by the way. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah, so that's fun. We always get together, like, holidays and go through the Beatles songbook. And it's, it's a blast. <laughs> but uh, anyway, so this song turned out really nicely. And Definitely. Hopefully people get a chance to listen to it. Let's tell you what, let's give everyone listening a chance to check it out right now. This is a sample of I Always Cry at Christmas by our guest, Richard Page. I always cry at Christmas No matter how I try To keep it all inside Something will touch me When I least expect it And that sweet familiar sound It'll turn my heart around And suddenly the magic Is everywhere I always cry at Christmas Maybe I'm overdue Trying to be so strong Or maybe it's just The story of a baby That this crazy world's forgotten For so long How did we all forget 
just long ago What if we all could live To love and to forgive Then every day there'd only be Tears of joy I always cried at Christmas And that was I Always Cry at Christmas, the latest release from today's guest, Richard Page. Someone told us in one of the interviews, they said, um, you know, some songs just beg to be written and they're waiting to just uh, to manifest themselves, you know. And, uh, you know, I, I found that uh, in listening to even Shelter Me, that some of those songs, Richard, they, uh, you know, you can't help but uh, put your sort of armor down and relate to your music just because you, you tend to reveal yourself an awful lot. You know, you, they seem rather transparent. And by the time you know it, emotion starts flowing in. It, it, they end up being real natural. You know, they're just easy songs to, to, to listen to, you know. I appreciate that. My wife has always said, you know, there's there's a few songs that you shouldn't reveal to people. Like, <laughs> you give too much away, you know. But I don't know. I'm, I'm just kind of like that. And I, you know, maybe I shouldn't be so uh, forthcoming. Mm-hmm. But um, I don't know. It comes out that way, so... Well, I think I think that's probably the a lot of the appeal of it because even uh, on some of your early work, and we'll talk a little bit on on some Mister Mister stuff. But I think you you've been very consistent all throughout your your writing, at least from my perspective. I'm, I've been a, a huge fan of yours for for many years, probably like a lot of people out of our audience. But I think it's all consistent writing. Uh, it, it hasn't changed. I think it's uh, it, it's neat. So I'm glad that this Christmas song uh, was this your first Christmas song that you ever really um, yeah. produced, really. Yeah. Yeah, um, but you know, I have to, I have to give uh, a credit to John Lang, who you know uh, collaborated with me okay. all through the Mister Mister and Page right, right. As, a, as a lyricist. Uh, I mean, he and I we're cousins, so we we grew up together. We started yeah. writing when we were fourteen or fifteen, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, see, so he's always had a big influence lyrically on me. But it wasn't until recently, actually, from Shelter Me On, that I really started to find my own voice lyrically. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd always sort of just sort of relied on him and wrote melodies and and uh, the music, you know. But um, anyway, it's, it's a nice, I'm a sort of a late bloomer when it comes to that. But, mm. but uh, I'm, I'm, it's always been difficult for me to write lyrics, but the challenge is, is a good one. And I'm always, mm-hmm. you know, was, satisfied somewhat yeah. when I get through one. To that point, do you feel that there was a, a, a turning point in your creative uh, writing uh, right before Shelter Me that, that changed the past to as to your approach to, you know, composing uh, and, and putting down lyrics? Uh, what, what changed there that sort of uh, sparked you in a different way? Yeah, I don't know if there was a, a specific thing, you mm-hmm. know, just uh, maybe just growing up, you know, having kids, kids getting older, sort of like stumbling through life and... yeah. You know, seeing the vulnerability and the, the fragileness of the human spirit, to me, it, it took me a while to really understand that, or, or, and I still don't, but right. but at least I'm aware of it. And, um, you know, I mean, and, and honestly, uh, more of a spiritual search. Mm-hmm. Uh, as you get older, you know, you realize your immortality and the impermanence of things, and, mm-hmm. and it certainly redirects your thinking, uh, having kids, like I said, and... Mm-hmm. You know, it's just, it all sort of came together, I think, to try to explain things. Yeah. We'll talk a little bit more about I Always Cry at Christmas in a bit, but I want to take a, a trip back in time to Keokuk, Iowa. 
<laughs> which is which is where you were born. And, and yeah. you know, uh, how long did you live in Iowa? How long were you there before your family eventually moved? I think they ended up moving to the Southwest, right, Phoenix? Or I was there. I think all of three months. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, we were, I was born there, and then uh-huh. I had an older brother and sister, and we moved to Princeton, New Jersey. Okay, where my father went to a very famous uh, choir college there called Westminster Choir College, mm-hmm. and he was. Uh, getting his degree in choral directing, and my mother was a fantastic pianist-organist. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they worked together uh, in churches, like in a Methodist church. And mm-hmm. We moved to Montgomery, Alabama, I think, when I was a year and a half. Okay. My dad got his degree in Princeton. We went to Montgomery. We stayed there during the 50s until, I think I was 10, and then we moved to Santa Monica. Okay. And that whole episode in Montgomery, Alabama in the 50s was pretty intense. Oh, sure. Uh, <laughs> for a you know, young kid from the north, right. family from the <laughs> north. Because we didn't really buy into any of that or what was going on down there. Mm-hmm. So we were a little bit like outsiders there, as I remember. But uh, my parents kind of got sick of it, and we moved to Santa Monica the year that Kennedy was shot. Well, that would be 63. 63. And yeah. we stayed there a few years, and then uh, to Phoenix. I went to high school in Phoenix, and then I was left and came to L.A., Mm-hmm. When I was about 18. Yeah, I was curious. Obviously, your parents were, or maybe your father was an influence on you musically. Well, both, they both were, yeah. My yeah. father was a great voice teacher. Mm-hmm. Still is. Well, he's 88 and retired, but, um, you know, he's a very, very talented guy, vocal arranger, and mm-hmm. all of that. And your mom, with uh, chances are, aficionado with probably the Allen organ back then, right? Or it's uh, a lot of the, the church type um, of uh, that and the Casavant organ. Uh-huh. Those were her favorites. The the Casavant series. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, my daddy actually spent a little time selling those. Really, yeah, we're really digressing now, but yeah, my mom was a fantastic organist. Uh-huh. You know, I'm always curious, you know, about how uh, a musician initially discovers his interest mm-hmm. in music. And at what point in your life did you f- find your, your interest there in music? There wasn't really any choice in my family. <laughs> it was just sort of like, like a... you know, like we were in the circus or something. We were born into it. You got on the high wire, you know. So yeah. it was just what we all did. I mean, at yeah. one point, we, my sister, my three brothers and I were, you know, literally the youth choir. My dad, we were the tenor bass and soprano sections because... You know, we could all sing really well. Yeah. So if mm-hmm. we weren't there, you could you could definitely tell. You know. Mm-hmm. There's an old gospel tune that uh, I remember. Uh, it's no, I I think part folk music. Or it says, you know, Mama sang bass, Papa sang tenor. Yeah. Um, yeah, right. <laughs> where you exactly. have no choice. The whole family plays, sings, and and that's about it. You know. <laughs> yeah, and you know what? We really had fun doing it too. I mean, it was a blast. I and mean, whenever we'd go on a trip, my dad would sort of like. You know, call out parts, and we—he's he, just off the top of his head, and everybody could harmonize. So yeah, you know, he'd come up with these ridiculously hard, beautiful, uh, close harmony arrangements in the car driving. And you know, I wish I'd recorded some of that. Stuff. <laughs> That's me. Really good. So obviously, your parents were influential, and you learned a lot from them. But were you, uh, as far as developing, you know, honing in on your craft and, and furthering your skills, did you study at a yeah. music school or a university? Um, not really, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, I took piano lessons as a kid, and of course I learned to sing, mm-hmm. but, um, I was really undisciplined, you know, I just didn't, it was sort of like when the Beatles came along, and, uh-huh. and that whole, you know, explosion of music in the late 60s and early 70s, I just, you know, I jumped ship, it was like, you know, that's where I have to go. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Kind of, you know, to my parents' chagrin, dismay, they didn't really 
like it, you know. But, um, but you know, once I had some success, they were like, oh, yeah, we knew all along. And, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, it's funny. Uh, you're talking about, uh, you know, when you're, a, when, you're a, when you're a kid and you're exposed to music. I mean, I don't know which instrument you ever picked up, you know. I, I know you, you sang very early, but, um, but as to an instrument, you know, when I was growing up, I remember uh, it must have been 9 or 10. For some reason, I stumbled on this old Maggie Rod Stewart, Maggie May album. And for some reason, that that uh, that album just totally changed me. I started playing piano to it and, and sort of imitating it and playing by ear because yeah. I never, I never, you know, what kind of memories can you give us of the the neat songs that were just like, man, they hit you like a brick. You know what I mean? And yeah, totally well, I, convinced. I think everybody has a story like that. Yeah. You know, there's just one influential thing that you hear. Yeah. I mean, there's a few for me, you know, along the way. Believe it or not, there was a song when I was a little kid. A song called by Johnny Horton called. The Battle of New Orleans. Oh, yeah, yeah. Jimmy I mean, I was like maybe five or six years old, and I, I played that over and over, and it was just in 1814, it yeah. was a little trip. You know? Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, that's cool, man. How did they, you know? Well, what a hooky song. That? How did they come up with that? <laughs> that's funny. That, that's my earliest memory uh-huh. of really liking a tune. And then it was, of course, the Beatles. It wasn't really the early Beatles for me. It was more like Revolver, and yeah. that's when it started When it started to get pretty complex. Uh-huh. So did you pick up an instrument then, or did you... Uh, um, yeah, w- yeah w- what I were you? played gu- guitar. Okay. I'd, I'd uh-huh. taken piano lessons. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I played and just... I was one of those kids that would sit in my room and just learn songs. And, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, I had black lights and <laughs> <laughs> Jimi Hendrix posters and stuff exactly. like right. that. <laughs> and just uh, Crosby, Stills, and Nash, that was another big oh, thing yeah. for me. I remember Deja Vu. My best friend and, and manager, George Giz, who we went, uh, went to high school, uh, always, was always turning me on to music. And mm-hmm. He gave me that, uh, I think it was an 8-track of uh, <laughs> Roger Stills and Nash and with Sweet Judy Blue Eyes mm-hmm. and all those great songs. Stevie Wonder was another huge thing for me. Yeah. Um, you know, right around fulfilling this first finale, that was a, you know, I think like a mind-blowing experience. <laughs> and... Uh, who else? You know, just people along the way, man. There's a lot of great music out there. Yeah, it? really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You and Steve George go back a long way. But when did you guys actually meet? I know it must have been in L.A., but uh, tell us about that meeting. With, with I think um, I think I was 18 and Steve uh-huh. was 16. And he was this kid who could play pretty much anything on piano. Hmm. And he hadn't really studied. That was what was mind-blowing about him. <laughs> And he played alto sax, and it was in a band called um, Andy Hardy, was the name of the band. Okay. And it was like a, a funk band. And they, they was all white guys, but they had a black singer, <laughs> a guy named Terry Smith, and mm-hmm. they played like really hardcore funk music. Mm-hmm. And so it was kind of odd, you know, to watch these young <laughs> white kids <laughs> up there slamming this funk down, you know. Yeah. And so... I used to sort of sit in with them. I went to a, a performing arts college in San Diego for a year, and I would sort of show up at their gigs and sit in and do Stevie Wonder and stuff. But Steve and I uh, met during that time. Yeah. And then, uh, do you want to hear the whole story? Oh, yeah, <laughs> sure, sure. sure. I mean, well, you... the whole story, is, if I can remember it all, is <laughs> we, uh, I ended up in L.A. Um, with John Lang, uh, lyricist, collaborator and george Giz, my manager and best uh-huh. friend and uh, we were just sort of hanging out trying to figure out what to do and um 
a guy named Jerry Manfredi, who was the bass player in Pages, the first band I was in, right. was uh, this great jazz bass player, and he was a Phoenix transplant living in L.A., and he called me up one day, and he goes, man, do you play jazz? I'm like, nah, I love it, but I don't really play it, you know. <laughs> and he said, well, I got an idea. Uh, I was just, you know, some, some of the, the expatriates from Phoenix were going to get together, and so a bunch of guys got together. It was uh, Pete Lionheiser and, oh, who else? Russ Battalion was a drummer, mm-hmm. and uh, Jerry and Steve George and myself. And we just started saying, well, you know, what, what should we do? And we kind of came up with some ideas, and pretty soon it was like, yeah, this is cool, you know, so... Um, that led to a record deal over there at Epic with Bobby Columbia. Right, right. Drummer from Blood, Sweat, and Tears was an A&R guy there. Mm-hmm. That kind of got us started. That was like 77, wasn't it? That was the... Yeah, yeah, 77. That was sort of so, the birth of Pages, correct? Yeah, to tie that together with Steve, you know, he was... He, he sort of came out of that Andy Hardy funk band thing. Mm-hmm. I sort of grabbed him, realizing he was... <laughs> he was the guy, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh... We started writing, the three of us, John and Steve and I. Yeah. And then, you know, that led to, like, covers with Al Jarreau and mm-hmm. all that work with Jake Graydon and exactly. Foster and all that. Yeah. You mentioned Pages, and you guys recorded uh, three albums before. I think you disbanded, you know, like in 1981 or something. You know, and that was obviously your, your first band. That was your first uh, record contract. And I wondered, you know, tell me a little bit about what you learned about the business of music and how did this experience with Pages, yeah. you know, prepare you for the career that was ahead of you with Mr. Mister and your solo projects? Well, I mean, geez, not sound like a jaded old veteran, but, you know, <laughs> I, I realized that that it's not a perfect world out there. Right. And in spite of, of the ineptness of most record companies, somehow things become successful. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I'd say a good 80, 85% of music that comes out uh, on a major label never sees the light of day. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot involved there. I mean, I think the music that we were doing at that time was pretty off the, off the wall, you know. I mean, it wasn't mainstream by any stretch. Right. As a matter of fact, we were trying to make it as complex and, and odd as we could. Mm-hmm. That was one of our goals, believe it or not. <laughs> right. I mean, David Foster asked me that some years ago. He said, like, you know, why, why, did you guys, why didn't you guys just you know, write some hits? And I thought, well, how do you do that? I don't, you know, we just were trying to be really creative and mm-hmm. really different. Mm-hmm. So um, what did I learn from that? I, I learned, you know, that... Um, I learned that you have to kind of follow your heart, and you have to really write uh, from from a place of honesty. Mm-hmm. And because we did kind of detour and try to write hits at one point, you know, just thinking, "Wow, we need to make money now." Mm-hmm. <laughs> and every time we'd sit down to write a hit song, it would always backfire and be, you know, stupid. So well, you know, you you mentioned the pages, you know, sort of wrote songs that were. A little off the wall, a little a little uh, more unusual than what you were than a lot of the mainstream pop that was out there, and they they really sort of reminded me of what Ambrosia was trying to do uh, as well, yeah. because Ambrosia had a, obviously had a lot of mainstream hits, but if you listen deep into their catalog, they had some really musically interesting stuff. I mean, really, yeah, those know. guys are really good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember we, we sort of uh, bumped into them a few times during during that mm-hmm. era. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they did. They they managed to have hits. So they were very good. Mm-hmm. Well, so is Pages. I've got all the page, all three of the Pages albums, and I, I still listen to them. I love them. And yeah, there's a few good songs in there. I mean, again, it's like you know, to me, it's like early. Uh, it's almost like a sketchbook. You mm-hmm. know? Yeah, right. Uh, there's a lot of. If I had it to do all over again, there are a lot of things I would change. Uh, 
in there, but, uh, you know, what can you do? Yeah, exactly. Let's take a quick break and take a trip back to 1978 and listen to a track from the first Pages album. This one is called Room at the Top. Pages and, and Mr. Mr. You and Steve were, were busy as session musicians, and I believe you even did some touring as a backing vocalist around that time for Andy Gibb of the Bee Gees, right? Well, our band basically was his was his backup. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, we had nothing going on. We were all broke. And mm-hmm. I don't know. I can't remember how it happened, how we got introduced to Andy, but I mm-hmm. think somebody told Andy, hey, there's this great band, and they're already intact, and they could just, like, they could tour. I think he needed somebody. Yeah, his hit was exploding, and, and he sure. needed a band right away. I think that's why we got the call. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we did a small tour with Andy Gibb. And mm-hmm. Tragically, he, he just completely uh, destroyed himself yeah. with uh, drugs, you know, and I, I hate to say that we, we had... We were around during that time. Well, you and Steve, though, had, had you know, around that time, though, you, you had the itch to, to form another band. And to tell us about what was happening in, in your life at that time and how Mr. Mr. Uh, became, mm-hmm. you know, or how it was formed. Mm. Um, well, I, you know, a lot of us during that time, you know, were really, really kind of uh, messed up on, on, on drugs. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it was, a, it was a time when... You know, musicians would show up at a session with a three-gram vial of Coke, you know, in their pocket. Mm-hmm. It was sort of an accepted thing right. for a lot of people, not everyone, but right. uh, we all kind of got swept away, uh, many of us did. And um, so I have to say, you know, that was, that was a real dark time for mm-hmm. me, uh, but for about four or five years. But um, we came out of that. Actually, actually, honestly, the song Broken Wings was really sort of about the leaving that behind. Really? 
Yeah, yeah. It was uh, it was sort of the purging of that whole thing, that that song, mm-hmm. and um, <clears throat> maybe that's why it was so popular because it really did come out of a real situation. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I mean to uh, to ask, answer your question about how things changed. We had done three albums as pages, and none of them had really made much noise commercially. Uh-huh. And uh, our George, my manager, just called me up and said, "Look, we got to we got to try something different. You know, this isn't working. We can't do a fourth album." Right. And in those years, we we had record company support, and they were like, "Yeah, keep going." And and we just said, uh, "I said you're right. We got to do something different." So Steve and I got together, and John, and we just just talked about what you, what we should do listening to the music of the day, the early 80s, and mm-hmm. trying to mold something around that. And we did, and we changed the name, found Steve Ferris and Pat Mastelato, mm-hmm. and put together that band, got a deal right away with RCA, and started making records. You know, I have a question regarding, uh, you mentioned uh, Broken Wings. Um, this question is sort of a combination of, of either building a song and also, uh, you, you know, I, I take it you, you penned that with, with Steve. Um, the bass line on that, on, the, on that track, Broken Wings, it's so constant throughout the whole song. How, I mean, how did you settle? Do you start, when you write, do you begin with music and then lyrics, or are you lyrics before? How does the relationship between both work? That particular song, I mean, they all happen different ways, yeah. but that song did start with the bass line. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And obviously, I mean, it's the first thing you hear. Exactly. And um, I actually just wrote that on a Prophet 5. I know what a Prophet 5 is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the old monophonic. Uh, exactly. Sense. And um, I kind of had that, and then I was holding that, that sus chord down, and just yeah. kind of goofing around with it. And, had the melody going, and I, I called John. I said, hey, I got something that's really cool. Come over here right uh-huh. now. You know? yeah. And he came over, and he started writing the, the lyric, and then we brought Steve in later. So, yeah, that song, that's I neat. forget what the question was. But. No, the, you know, I, was, I was basically asking, you know, did, you know the, the bass line that is so dominant throughout the whole track, is, is that where it all started? And you said, yeah, yeah it did, yeah. yeah it did. Yeah, that, that's very, very neat. You know, you mentioned Steve Ferris and Pat Mastellato. Uh Pat's been a guest on our show before yeah. as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, you you held auditions to, to find uh, these guys, right? I mean, yeah. to, to find these two members. And what was the appeal about these two guys that you and Steve felt was the right chemistry for yeah. the band? Well, with Steve, he just, he had a, uh, he was really good. I mean, he was, a, mm-hmm. he was a great player. And he had a kind of an attitude and a look that we thought would be good too. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I mean that did well, that was taken into consideration. Sure, he wasn't just like a a woodshedding great smoking player like <laughs> a lot of the guys that we knew. Mm-hmm. But he also had a kind of a rock thing going. You know, he had a he had an attitude that mm-hmm. we liked. Mm-hmm. And then Pat was just like greatest guy in the world. Was completely into doing whatever would make the music happen and right. he could play. Mm-hmm. So he was just like chemistry was 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 great with him. You know? mm-hmm. He's an amazing player. But the ch- the funny story about all that is is at that time I was we were going to have a bass player too, mm-hmm. and uh, I was just going to maybe play some guitar and keyboards and sing. And uh, Pat was going to bring this bass player, that I've forgotten the guy's name, but it, it's one of those kind of funny horrible stories where the guy had uh, dental work the day before and <laughs> couldn't come to the audition. <laughs> yeah. His mouth was all messed up, and so I just picked up a bass to kind of audition Pat, and just get us through the audition and right. we all looked at each other and went well 
Wait a minute, we don't need a fifth guy. <laughs> <laughs> do it like, like one less ego, one less paycheck, you know? Exactly. And that's really how it, how it happened. And then I just went home and started practicing because I wasn't really much of a bass player. Really? No, I mean, I, I can play enough of everything to sort of accompany myself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'm a total frustrated drummer. I, I wish that I could be a great drummer, but I love to play <laughs> So when you compose, uh, when you write, uh, do you have, your own, you have your own studio, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, do you, I mean, you, you put all your, every part together on your own then while you're building them, right? Uh, these days I do. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But you can these days. I mean, the equipment is so incredible now. I mean, amazing? software right. is amazing, you know, mm-hmm. the things that you can do. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I really enjoy yeah. doing all that sequencing. But generally, I I prefer live musicians. Mm-hmm. Still mm-hmm. kind of old school like that. Yep, we're we're glad to hear that actually. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, aren't we? You know, your your the Mister's first album was I, I Wear the Face, and you know it sold some records, but wasn't nearly the commercial success that your second album, Welcome to the Real World, achieved. And what was the label's perspective on the band following your first album? I mean, yeah. did they did they apply a lot of pressure to sell more units with your second release, or were they supportive? And and, and not really. We had a great A uh, and R guy named Paul Atkinson who uh, passed a few years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, much too young he was a great great guy and he was a member of the band the zombies yeah hmm. paul atkinson mm-hmm. and he signed us and he really just uh was behind us all the way you know? mm-hmm. so he never applied any of that pressure good <clears throat> he just said keep doing what you do mm-hmm. and um the all of the circumstances came together to, that uh you know made broken wings and curie and is it love and all that mm-hmm. uh, popular yeah that album was such a it was such a huge album and it, and it really catapulted the band to uh, a lot of worldwide notoriety yeah. you know and this album was released during the heyday of of mtv and i, I remember the spring break concert that you guys had in daytona beach in 86 when mr <laughs> mr was part of you know a huge concert with starship and it was broadcast live and uh i was actually at that concert because i had a, oh, I, had a yeah. I had a relative that lived down there i was still in high school so i went down and got to catch that and uh and it was the first time I saw you guys perform, and I was just completely, you know, blown away by that show in general. And, and that, that was that was big exposure for the band at the time. That was a fun gig. I remember uh, Daytona Beach. Yeah, that was really a blast. <laughs> right. We had a, you know, we did a tour with Tina Turner also, right? That's right. About the time Broken Wings was uh, becoming number one you know, all over the world. Mm-hmm. That was uh, that was exciting because she was very hot in those times, literally. <laughs> but you know, she. She helped us a lot by uh, exposing us to her crowd, and I think we brought a few people in for her, too. Mm-hmm. The thing about Mr. Mister was that everybody could play really well, you know? Mm-hmm. So it was always fun to perform, mm-hmm. because the level of musicianship was so good mm-hmm. that uh, we just kind of fed off each other. That's to, cool. To that point, what was, uh, I mean, your, when you were doing your own thing as a band, uh, what was the contribution level of all the band members? I mean, was everybody contributing to, to writing and, and building songs? Um, we did write together, and yeah. a lot of the songs that, that we ended up recording were stuff that just came out of rehearsals or just, you know, jamming or just having fun at right. sound checks and so forth. But, sure. Um, I think the, the core writing team was myself and Steve and uh, John Lang. Because we had uh, we had been writing together for years before, and of course, you know, had many many covers before from people like even you know Donna Summer and Pointer Sisters, and, right? Um, you know, a lot of other Meatloaf, believe it or not. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, a lot of other 
artists cut our songs. Uh-huh. Al Jarreau, mm-hmm. stuff like that. So we were already a kind of a writing team. I think most of the songs that people remember were, you know, from that core team. You know, the the third Mr. Mr. release was titled Go On, and we spoke to uh, Pat Mastellato a while back and asked him why that particular album wasn't as much of a success as Welcome to the Real World, and he claimed that it simply wasn't supported by the record company. There was uh, some, one of, whoever was supporting the album or supported you had left, or there was some change at the top. Mm. And, uh, you know, in my mind, it was a shame because I, I personally felt that that was the band's, <laughs> oh, yeah. you know, most complete album. What are your thoughts about going? Same. You know, I felt like we, uh, there was a little bit of a, uh, an assumption on my part that because we had the attention of everybody, mm-hmm. that we could kind of do whatever we wanted mm-hmm. to do. And I think we maybe made too far of a left turn. Um, the sound was different. Yeah. Uh, Paul DeVillier, who co-produced Welcome to the Real World with mm-hmm. us, was out on the road with Yes, and he, he uh, was doing other projects, and his scheduling didn't work out. So we just felt like we had to mo- <laughs> literally go on without him. <laughs> yeah. And um, so we you know, hired Kevin Killen, who had just come off the Peter Gabriel's So album. Right. Uh-huh. And um, kind of went in a different direction. And that I think that hurt a little bit, but the biggest problem was is that the regime had changed over at RCA completely. Mm-hmm. Of course, uh, people may not remember this, but Jose Menendez, who was you know unfortunately murdered by his sons, that's right, uh, was at the helm there when we were doing Welcome to the Real World. Wow! And uh, although I think he had moved on from RCA before that happened, mm-hmm. and new people came in, and they really just didn't get who we were, and. Um, it was sort of like uh, an office full of strangers over there. Yeah. Uh, they really didn't do a lot to help us, you know, which they should have because we were coming off sure. of a multi-platinum you know, yeah. album with huge hits. You would think it was, it was a no-brainer. Exactly, you know? you just, yeah. But it didn't work out like that. Isn't so. that the amazing danger of when, you know, hierarchy at the top of major labels, uh, it changes? And it seems as if everything that was built up over the many years and it's, you know, you, the connection is lost, you know? Yeah. Like I said before, uh, uh, the ineptness uh, is just, it's amazing. But I think that's just the human, um, the human condition. Mm-hmm. I was going to say the same thing happened to Toto after Toto 4 hit, you yeah. know, and, and their follow-up isolation was... Pretty much lost in the shuffle because of a lot of changes with their yeah. record company and uh, just didn't support it. So, yeah, um, I think too that people get swept away, especially A and R people and record execs. They get swept away by uh, trends, and they they feel like, well, we got to jump on this trend now, and that thing isn't working anymore. Right? Uh, you know that, or it doesn't have any relevance anymore. So we need to jump on this new trend, and they keep chasing trends. It's like that joke about the. The, the songwriter who calls up the A&R guy and he says, hey, uh, have you heard that song I sent over? And the A&R guy says, yeah, yeah. And he goes, the songwriter says, well, what do you think of it? And A&R guy says, well, I don't know. I'm the only one who's heard it. <laughs> uh, that, yeah. that sort of typifies to me you know, like what goes on there. Right. Yeah. You know, a little while uh, But ago. I'm not bitter. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, of course not. No, no, I don't I don't detect any of that. <laughs> you know, a while ago I, I pulled out uh, one of my vinyl albums. It was the Go On album and and uh, me and uh, Rick started talking about a couple of the standout songs and we both agreed that, you know, Man of a Thousand Dances and, you know, tunes like Healing Waters, uh, 
Um, they're, they're just so powerful. That that album, it, it was different, but it it still delivered a level of quality that was, like you say, uh, it was different than Welcome to a Real World, but it, it was different, you know? I can remember thinking that uh, that albums, the the albums that I grew up loving as a as a kid and a teenager and you know a young adult, were the ones that were seamless. There was no fat on them. There was no you know oh well I hate that song or oh, yeah. that song doesn't work with this or mm-hmm. there's only two songs on this album that I like. those albums that I loved had a seamless quality to them. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I started thinking. I remember consciously, you know, we have to do albums that are like that. And so we started getting more. Uh, discriminating about songs and songs that just didn't work, uh, you know, couldn't make it to the record. Mm-hmm. I know a lot of artists have done this. I, we didn't invent this, but yeah. it sort of occurred to us at the time. Mm-hmm. And so I felt like "Go On" was more a representation of that kind of thinking. Absolutely. You know that there were there were no weak spots in the in the record. Not at all. <laughs> no, no, no. It was. I mean, very much. Uh, Shelter me is like that also. Yeah, uh, I, I, yeah, I think so too. Mm-hmm. And Shelter Me took a while to put together. I mean, those songs, a lot of them I sat on for, you know, a few years. What, what was the earliest song on Shelter Me, Richard? What is um, uh, the earliest song? Maybe even The Pain was, was something like kind of a breakthrough song for uh-huh. me that well, I sat on for, for quite a while, like you know, yeah. four or five years or something. Mm-hmm. And I um, couldn't wait to record it, you know. I had I actually had a great demo of that too. That, mm-hmm. Problem was I, I had demoitis with that one. So it took me forever to get it cut the way I wanted it because I just kept going back to the demo, going, "This is better." But right. of course, the sound quality was horrible. And, <laughs> you know. And since we're talking here about the song "Even the Pain," which, by the way, is my favorite track from "Shelter Me," um, I'm going to be a little selfish and play a sample of this one. This is "Even the Pain" from Richard's 1996 solo release, "Shelter Me." Can't sleep at night 
Even the Pain from Richard Page, our guest today here on Inside Music Cast. Let me interject something right here. It's funny you say, you know, the seamless albums, and uh, we can, you know, chances are not only your projects, but in the past, I think we could all pull out some uh, albums that are seamless. And it's unfortunate that these days, you know, it's all about the single, you know. Um, it's all, it's, there's not that um, perspective of writing, of making something unified, because, you know, what are your feelings on that? Um. Well, without you know the, the, taking the risk of sounding like a, a crusty old bitter yeah, yeah, right. uh, veteran, um, yeah, I agree. You know, to a, to an extent, but but the, the the landscape has changed so much out there um, with iTunes and um, with radio. The way it's sort of uh, what's the word? It's sort of uh, segmented. <laughs> yeah, and it's and, and, and there's just like. Um, these categories, yeah, you know, hip hop and, right. and art. Well, I mean, I don't know what R&B is anymore. To me, that's like Al Green and right. you know, that era. But but hip hop and R&B has a has a sound now, and it's kind of a you know it's it's a repeated sound. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of repetition in there. Yeah, I agree. And then uh, what we used to call like uh, alternative rock has uh, morphed into something else. You know. Um, I'm not sure, you know, that I'm the most uh, the expert person to even talk about this. But yeah. singles, yeah, uh, singles are, have, are are driving everything now. It seems like, mm-hmm. although it seems like there's still great bands out there. I mean, Coldplay makes great records, and right? Somewhat seamless records. You mm-hmm. two always does, but they, you know, that's that's a whole other level. Right. But um, yeah, it's, the business has changed quite a bit. Yeah. You know, I, I had a question. This is something that's always been a curiosity of mine, and, and I know that somewhere along the line, and a couple of times there in the in the middle '80s, you you were uh, supposedly approached by both Toto and Chicago to join their bands as a vocalist in it. At least that's the rumor I've heard. I, I, was there some truth to that? Yeah, there was some truth. I mean, you know, it wasn't like a, it wasn't a big deal. Mm-hmm. They, you know, when, when uh, Peter Cetera left and they were looking around and I was my name was I was sort of coming up in the business and mm-hmm. um, you know there was talk about it and, and both when Bobby Kimball too but I knew those guys I knew the Toto guys better than the Chicago guys uh-huh. you know it was just and it's a long time ago so I don't really remember exactly what mm-hmm. happened but right. yeah there was some some reaching out about mm-hmm. that but at both situations I you know I had 
something going on my own, and, and I right. just felt like, wow, what a what an honor, you know, to be asked to be in either one of those bands. Both amazing con- uh, contributors <laughs> to you know rock and pop music, but yeah, it just didn't fit for me. Mm-hmm. Well, when uh, Mister Mister eventually broke up, and I think it was like '89 or something, you you kind of immersed yourself back into the studio, and you were performing and writing again for other musicians. And I think Elvis Costello comes to mind. I think he did some backing vocals for Toto, and of course, then there was that Madonna song that you and Patrick Leonard wrote and produced, uh, the song "I'll Remember," which was a big hit for her. And uh, but your real focus, I think, during that time was was really just uh, spending time with family and just kind of uh, taking a break, right? Well, you know, I never. Took a, I mean, I took a break from what you know people would say is mm-hmm. like a working uh, yeah. you know, artist, a commercial artist out there. Um, yeah, I did. I, I, uh, I actually missed a lot of my two daughters who are now twenty four and twenty two. Mm-hmm. They were just little kids at that time, yeah. so I missed a lot of their early years uh, because of touring and you know, being in the studio and all that. Right. It's, it wreaks havoc on a family. It's just it's not a family business. Yeah. <laughs> So, um, but not to say that I intentionally quit. I mean, things worked out. Mr. Mister was not being received the way we had once had been. Mm-hmm. Things were were waning. And, uh, you know, I was wondering what I was going to do next. And mm-hmm. so I just sort of backed off a little bit mm-hmm. and got into some other things, just family stuff. I, I got into surfing, like, yeah. extremely. Really? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, like maybe maybe too much, but uh, but that's that's a whole nother that's another addiction. But uh, <laughs> you know, just being with the family, mm-hmm. um, just hanging out and and enjoying life and you know, writing. Right. Yeah, uh, and then I started thinking, wow, I got to make some money, so <laughs> uh, you know, I got to keep paying the bills. Uh-huh. And then uh, you know, little by little. Songs started to catch on with other people, and yeah. you know, Celine Dion and Josh Groban, and right. now Leona Lewis. And you know, I've been real fortunate to have those kind of connections where sure. I can go in and play a song for somebody and have a good shot at getting it cut. Uh-huh. Well, another connection was uh, someone I mentioned a moment ago, and that's Patrick Leonard, and, yeah, right. and you two formed uh, the band Third Matinee, which I think around '92 or something, and you released your first album. And meanwhile, in '94, uh, yeah. It was a really creative time. Pat mm-hmm. was uh, another one of those, you know, incredibly gifted people. Still mm-hmm. is, sure. but it was another kind of deal where he, I think, Kevin Gilbert and he had split up, and he just called me and said, you know, what do you think? You want to come over and try some stuff? And so I think uh, I went over the next day, and we ended up writing like three things, you know, mm-hmm. in a day, and we went, yeah, this is cool. So we made that record. Mm-hmm. And during that time, you know, he was still working with Madonna and uh, we presented that song, I'll Remember to Her, and she loved it. And so it was a nice, it was a good time. Mm-hmm. Pat's a, a wonderful guy and a really creative, creative mm-hmm. musician. You know, one of the songs on that third matinee album is, is a song called All the Way Home, which yeah. isn't that, a, if I'm correct, is that a, a, a tribute of sorts to the late Toto drummer Jeff Percaro? It is in a way, and you know, I mean, it's it can be taken in a number of ways. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, we were all you know pretty devastated around that time. Sure. And I think uh, it, the song sort of reflected uh, some of our feelings about that. Hey, Richard, let's take one final break and take a listen to the track that we're talking about here. This is "All the Way Home" from the third matinee album entitled "Meanwhile." 
the opportunity I believe to work with Jeff on several occasions and yeah. in fact I think you laid down some backing vocals on Toto's uh, 1992 release Kingdom of Desire and you know we've Eddie and I have asked other guests the same question but give us your thoughts about Jeff yeah. as a person and mm-hmm. as a musician um, Jeff was a really amazing musician I don't have to tell anybody that right you know not just a drummer but he was really a gifted musician mm-hmm. And uh, my first recollection was he came over and played on a Pages, uh, the third Pages album, mm-hmm. and uh, over in a little, little tiny studio called LRS over on in uh, on Magnolia in North Hollywood. And uh, you know we just hit it off, and yeah, I was just blown away at, at his playing. <laughs> yeah, um, and then of course you know we would always meet on sessions. He'd be leaving, and I'd be coming in to do some background vocals. And, mm-hmm. You know, so he's just, uh, and his brothers, I mean, we're, they're just real tight-knit, great guys, and mm-hmm. uh, what can I say? Well, unbelievable Steve. talent, unbelievable loss. Right, yeah. And I think it was, it was Steve Picaro, he played on, uh, didn't he play with you on Third Matinee? Uh, didn't he track, yeah, do some Steve track? Yeah, Steve came over and played a few things, yeah. and 
Uh, over the years, Mike and I have done things together, too. Mm-hmm. And, uh, of course, Luke and I have been friends for years. As a matter of fact, this is funny. I was over in Sweden in June uh-huh. and uh, writing with some, some guys uh, that I write with over there, Pierre Magnus and David Kruger. Uh-huh. And they were like, hey, you know, Luke, there's playing tonight at this club. And <laughs> so I, well, I hadn't seen him in a long time. It's been probably a couple of years, you know. Yeah. And so I showed up at this club, and we, <laughs> we walked backstage. Of all places. I mean, he lives right over the hill in the San Fernando Valley from where I live. And I don't see him, but here we are in Stockholm. So that was kind of a shock. You know, if he knew you were there, he would have pulled you up on stage. Well, he did know I was there. Oh, did he? Yeah. We couldn't think of any songs that that we could do that the band knew, so we just asked for it. Decided to drink tequila instead. (laughs) That's funny. You know, uh, over this past week, me and Rick have been sort of uh, revisiting and sort of immersing ourselves uh, on, on the, you know, your album Shelter Me. And, um, you know, <laughs> after all these years, you know, th- th- this album, you know, coming back to it again, Richard, it's uh, it's still as, as relevant today and, and it sounds very neat. Uh, uh, you know, heaven is, you know, 10 zillion light years away and my oxygen. I mean, those things just just still stand out and they have a lot of relevance. I mean, uh do you um you know you know you've been involved in so many bands you know over so many years and and uh prior to releasing shelter me did you have any desire to you know go back and i mean maybe we've asked this question again but you never really quite leave the the temptation of of coming back and and doing an album right yeah you know and i'm trying to figure out a way to do that today and with today's world and with yeah. the internet the way it is and without a a major label and th- there's so many opportunities now, and I've been talking to my brother about this. And um, my plan is, if I can pull it off, mm-hmm. is to start doing not necessarily an album, yeah, but eventually an album, but to start posting new songs up on the website mm-hmm. and at iTunes. Mm-hmm. Right, um, kind of goes against our conversation a minute ago about singles, but uh, I kind of like the idea of doing that. Mm-hmm. There's a lot involved in putting an album together. And if I can do it at my pace, which is, you know, pretty sure, slow, yeah. um, by the time, maybe over the course of a year of just posting songs, I'll have an album mm-hmm. that I could release, you know, uh, in CD form. Uh, something like that. I don't really know. We're, we're trying to figure out exactly how to do it. Yeah. There's so many cool new ways to do it. I was talking to Roy Bidden the other night. We were at a party, uh, the keyboard player for the E Street Band. Mm-hmm. He was a neighbor of mine. And he was saying the same thing. He's, he wants to do some of his music. And I'm thinking, God, Roy, man, there must be how many millions of people are into the E Street Band Yeah, mm-hmm. that you could access, you could find them and do your albums like that. Right. You know? uh, right straight from the Internet mm-hmm. and bypass the middleman, you know, forget the record company. My apologies to all record companies. <laughs> well, you know, you're right. You know, everyone seems to be rethinking this because it's a it's a whole new mechanism of distribution, and it actually, if if you can catch the vibe of this thing, it actually can make this thing a little easier. And you, your audience is that much bigger. I mean, it's and the point is, is that as an artist, you don't have to sell three or four million records to to make a living to keep doing yeah. your music. Right. Exactly. You know? you're, you're cutting out. I mean, record companies. I don't know. Is it like eighty? 85% they, it, they take. It's you know, amazing. It's, it's unheard of. It's right. like highway robbery, you know. 
Mm-hmm. So, but then, but then again, they do give you the promotion and, and get your radio and, and advertising mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff. So there is an upside to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But my feeling is, is that in this time of my life and many other people that came up in the uh, era that I did, let's just go for it. Let's just have sure. a direct connection to our fans. Right. You put the songs together mm-hmm. and, and let them buy it. And don't worry about whether you're, you're you know, triple, quadruple platinum. Yeah. Mm-hmm. People are looking for music. You know, you know, in the past, you know, people, you know, the record companies have been sort of directing towards the audience. Now people are looking for the music. They're turning over these stones and, and they're looking for it. And uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a totally different mindset. I've got a couple girls. Uh, one of my daughter is, you know, she's about ready to head off to college next year. And, and it, it's just amazing where she will look for music. And I'm really astounded as to the type of things that they're exposed to that, uh, you know, that, and it's all right there waiting for him, you know? Yeah. It's cool. Yeah, it's, it's actually, it's, it's cool. I mean, I, I like where it's going, and it's sort of like the Wild West. You know, nobody really knows what's <laughs> going to happen. That's the truth. Um, you know, so we just keep monitoring what's going on and, and just keep finding our audience. So I got a few ideas about how to pull this off and mm-hmm. get sort of back into it in a, in a way that makes me feel comfortable where I'm not obliged to a record company to do all of the things that they sure. think I need to do. Right. And uh, there's some freedom in that. Yeah. Well, I know I speak for all your fans that uh, we're waiting. We're waiting with bated breath. Oh, thanks. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it, too. We, we've, yeah, cool. uh, you know, I, I certainly have, uh, you know, I've been wondering. I, I've been chasing you down for, you know, about a year, year and a half to, to get an interview with you. And I think at one point you mentioned uh, at the time when I contacted you last, you were working on, uh, I think, a project with your daughter. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, my daughter, Asia. Uh-huh. She's a really good singer and her. Uh, older brother, my stepson Ty, is, is a is a songwriter, and they put some of their songs together, mm. and uh, it turned out really nicely. And we did a, a video, uh-huh. and um, but we're not quite sure what to do with it yet. Mm-hmm. We're not totally uh, ready to pull the trigger on it, so that's something that's still incubating. Mm-hmm. I noticed your daughter's name is spelled A J A Asia. Uh-huh. Is there any Steely Dan reference there? Or? Well, no, there isn't really. Actually, my <laughs> wife, when we had our first daughter, Alicia. Um, who's two years older, she said to me, if we have another daughter, I'm going to name her Asia. And I said, why? She goes, I, don't know, I just like the way it sounds. Yeah, yeah. So everybody asked me that. There must be some. Although that's one of my favorite albums of all time. So oh, me too. <laughs> maybe it was subliminal. <laughs> hey, well, Richard, I, just, I want to tell everyone again that's listening to, uh, to definitely check out richardpagemusic.com. And definitely, if you haven't heard uh, I Always Cry at Christmas, you know, you've got, you got to take a listen to this. It's yeah. a beautiful song. Um, and uh, we really appreciate um, you spending time with us today. And, and I was going to ask you one other thing. Do you have any, I mean, coming up for 2009, are there any other projects that you have coming up that uh, we'd be interested in knowing about, or are you st- still kind of working on your own material at this point? Yeah, we're, like I said, we're, we're putting uh, more time into the website. Okay. There. We're talking about doing some collaborations with some other people mm-hmm. right now. And I don't really want to get into that yet because sure, it's sure. not, you know, hasn't been developed yet. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, just keep an eye out for for what's going on. And um, you know, I have a friend at iTunes that, that's helping me out over there. Good. And uh, so it's it's kind of a nice outlet. Definitely. Uh So I can't really give you any specifics other than I'm just going to start sort of posting songs and, sure. and working on stuff and and see where it goes. Well, that's good Great. news. Well, Richard, thanks so much for spending time with us. Thank you, Richard. My pleasure. I enjoyed it. All All right. right. Take care. Okay. All right. Very special thanks to Richard Page for joining us on this episode of Inside Music Cast. 
Be sure to join us again on January 19th for an Inside Music Cast interview with jazz fusion keyboardist Steve Weingart as he chats with us about his career, including his recent world tour with Steve Lukather and his work with the Dave Weckl Band. For more information about Inside Music Cast, check out our website at InsideMusicCast.com. You can also find us on Facebook and MySpace. We'd love to hear from you, and we always take our listeners' input and suggestions into consideration. So drop us an email anytime at input at InsideMusicCast.com. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Thanks for listening to Inside Music Cast. Inside Music Cast.